So we're going to be in Exodus 1 tonight. Um, starts. We'll just start with verse 1 and we'll dig in. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, <clears throat> Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. So verses 1 through 5 basically summarize the end of Genesis. So we're picking up where we left off. In fact, we're so picking up where we left off. The uh, first two words in the Hebrew are Shem Ben, names children. And when it's put like that in the Hebrew, it's we add in the now, or, or you could also add in the word and. So it's not even... Uh, necessarily starting with its own introduction it's basically continuing straight from genesis uh, and it's meant to go that way and in the hebrew the the books is named names which is the first word of the scroll uh shemot is then what they would call it in the hebrew when the greeks made a greek when, the, when we made a greek version of exodus uh they used the word exodus which is more the the whole theme of the book which is going or a way out um so it's got a catchy name in the in the greek um we move from individuals to a nation. Notice that transition as we go into uh, verses 6 and and 7. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So that generation with names is kind of gone, but the children of Israel, the nation, were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So if they had any other words for abundant, multiplying, exceeding, mighty, fruitful, if they had more words, I'm thinking they would have added them here. But verse 7, it's pretty easy to get the point of this, uh, which is that the Israelis have grown at a quick rate, um, and they've grown fast. Um, By pointing out that Joseph died and everyone in that generation, that's another way to say, based on the themes of Genesis, we don't have a Messiah yet, or Messiah hasn't happened yet. Um, because if they died, they're disqualified for Messiah. The Messiah will live eternally, um, and we don't see that from anybody in that generation, and that's verse 6 is kind of really locking that down. Time has passed uh, since uh, since we last saw the nation of Israel. It's been 400, 430 years, depending on uh, how you timeline this, uh, this story of when they're going to leave. Uh, they're going to be in Egypt a little longer than they're supposed to be, um, in part because Moses has got some things to learn and Israel's uh, got to be ready to go. Um, they're they're doing quite well in their in their land until they have some problems, which is where we're going to pick up in Exodus one that they're going to say, hey, the you know we're going to have some issues here in in Egypt. So. Um, Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and still go up out of the land. So who the Pharaoh is at this point, uh, it's interesting. There arose a new king over Egypt. We don't even really know for sure who that king is. Um, but it's interesting that we we still know who Joseph is, and that's even in Joseph's death, he's still a mirror of Jesus. There's been so many people that have denied Jesus over history that we've forgotten their names, but the name of Jesus is still known across the planet. 
Um, and Joseph, likewise, has been recorded for eternity in the scriptures. But who the kings of Egypt are, we don't even really know their names outside of some Egyptian records where we can make some good guesses. When we make those guesses around the identity of the pharaohs, we might get some illumination here. Um, but again, this is all based on theory, not on the Bible. Um, but there's a belief that the 16th and 17th Egyptian dynasties were Hyksos, which would be a Shemitic people, uh, descendants of Shem, uh, son of Noah, uh, that would have invaded this land. Now, the, the, the Shemites or the Semites would be a lot more amenable to allowing the Hebrews to come live in Goshen, uh, right? Because they're bringing in people that are generally from the same family branch. Um, the Hamite people, sons of Ham, uh, were the, the nations that, uh, again, uh, Ham was the son of Noah, nations that really populated all of Africa. So there's a conflict. Egypt's right on the border. And there were periods where uh, Semitic pharaohs took over Egypt, and there were periods where Hamitic uh, pharaohs took over Egypt. And it's believed that when Joseph was around, they were in Hyksos dynasties, um, and that, that was they were just more friendly to the, the, the Hebrews being there. Um, however, when 400 years have passed, we believe that's a period when the Hamitic pharaohs took over again. So when a new king arises, that implies, um, uh, you know, a new young kind of, uh, government is coming into place and they're trying to establish their power. Uh, they're going to do what they can to establish their power. And the first thing that they're going to do, like a lot of people do when they come into power is they identify their enemies. And for this Pharaoh, those enemies are going to be the Jewish people. And they, they, he starts to build fear and dread. Um, there are some folks that look at the idea that it says there are more uh, Egyptians that, or more Israel people than Egyptians. And I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a good way to read this, because first of all, it's a quote from the Pharaoh. He could be exaggerating the number of Israelis, which is the easiest explanation where it says more and mightier than we. Another explanation is that it's a Hamitic dynasty, and there are still plenty of Shemite, Hyksos, Egyptians living in the land. So there's actually factions in Egypt, and, and the clue to that is at the very end of verse 10, where it says that they would also join our enemies and fight against us. So... If they're thinking of, wow, if these Israeli people join with the Hyksos people, they could put their own pharaohs back in power again, and we would be outnumbered completely. So that would make a lot of sense, and even within this, th th these three verses, that's um, two different ways to explain that passage. Um, there are, you know, you look at uh, one, Mr. Jeff A. Benner uh, cites this, this problem of Egypt's population and looks at very common uh, estimates that at this time we believe Egypt would have populated around 5 million people. Um, so, you know, he says this is a problem because that would mean that Israel would have to be at 6 million to be more than the Egyptians. Well, first of all, there's the simple explanations, the three verses that you just look in the text and, and see this as faction siding and exaggeration. Um, but even if you look at the numbers, this isn't a major problem for the Bible. Um, we're going to see soon that they leave with 600 people. Um, the, the word elif could be translated 6,000 chiefs. Um, if you do six, 600,000 people, then if you just add women, you're at uh, 1.2 million people. Uh, if you add children also, you could be right around 2 million. You're still not more than the Egyptian population. However, if you translate that instead of 600,000 people, you translate it as 6,000 chiefs of 1,000 people, um, then those chiefs could be chiefs of tribes, 
Um, and those numbers could add up to six million actually really instantly just based on translation. Any of those three explanations seems more plausible than that this is a huge mistake um, because at the end of the day, the pharaoh was scared of the number of people that were there. So whether or not they were less than or more than, I, I think that even at 600,000, even if you don't count women and children, 600,000 people is a significant army even by today's standards. Um, and if they all live in one area of Goshen, then you're looking over the horizon where all those Israeli people are building their cities, and you're thinking, wow, we have an, a distinct nation growing up right in the middle of our country, and that's not a good thing. And for a new uh, uh, a new dynasty to step in and, and put a new order into Egypt, then it makes sense that Pharaoh is going to uh, give in to his darker imaginations, and evil will take root, and God has to step in. So in verse 11, we see that the Pharaoh starts to uh, afflict or burden the Israeli people out of fear um, and out of kind of a sense of nationalism uh, that he's going to do that. So therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities. Taskmaster could be translated the Lord of Tribute. So that could also not just be a workmaster, but a tax um, where they're being taxed and that's a burden to them. Uh, either way, this is reflective of Esther's day. Uh, there's a respected subculture, and now they're being forced into kind of an abusive relationship with the governing powers. That translation happens fairly quickly. Um, so Jews are living there. They're prospering. They're doing well. They're good people. They're herding their sheep. But 400 years later, it looks like they're uh, um, following Joseph's example of just being good servants for 400 years. Now suddenly the, you got a new ruler in town. Uh, and they're not happy with that. There, there's a, a fear for the Jews even today that a Holocaust will happen. And, and that fear is rooted in history. This is, we're in the middle of the first uh, Holocaust where uh, they're going to endure a period of time where, where they're going to uh, have their babies aborted by government edict. And the second major um, attempt to eliminate the Jewish people were the Persians. Um, and we saw, we'll see later in the Bible how God handles that. And then there's a non-biblical version, which is the Germans, when they decided we're going to eliminate all the Jews. And they started uh, mass exterminations of the Jewish people. So they have some fears because there's been three times in history uh, where a nation or a government has determined that they're going to eliminate the Jewish people. Um, so verse 12, here's what God tends to bless them when these things happen as they endure these burdens and these hardships. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their rigor there as cruelty, harshness, a severe kind of service that they have. And they made their lives better with hard bondage in mortar and brick in all manner of service in the field, and all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. We see that word twice. This wasn't nice service. This was mean service. Uh, They were shifted now, instead of just taxation or a burden, uh, now suddenly they're shifted to manual labor, hard labor, in the field labor in verse 14. Uh, which is which is uh, forced slavery. They're not unlike when the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, "We'll sell you our labor." Uh, that's employment. Uh, when you're forced to do work, um, that's slavery. So we see this kind of shift to a mean and a cruel form of slavery. 
the strategy, however, doesn't work. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't need to be home every day to have babies, and the Egyptians are thinking if we put them to work in the fields, they won't be home making babies, but that doesn't quite happen. You really only need to be home one day out of every nine months to continue to make babies, and the Jewish people have been told by God to multiply, and they are doing exactly what they were told in that sense. Um, we still have slavery around today. Uh, it's, it's estimated that there's around 1.2 million children uh, in a, over 160 countries uh, that are involved in human trafficking, which is an industry of about 7 billion people a year. And we've been this has started to come more and more to the news front, but hum, sales of humans uh, are, has, has, is a sin and a corruption that starts back here. And it's going to continue even through today. Uh, we enslave more people than just Jewish people. Uh, today, of course, the practice has expanded because, frankly, free labor uh, is uh, is a massive industry and a, and a burgeoning industry. Uh, it's usually based on sin, greed, lust, those kinds of things, and, and getting people to do things they wouldn't normally do on their own. And you, you have to force people in that sense. So... Um, jo- Josephus is a historian, and he actually records that during this pe- period that uh, um, the Jewish people, part of that work in the field was building these embankments to redirect the Nile River and part it into different paths so that it could irrigate more territory and more land. That's pretty much the worst work you can think of, is getting in the mud, shoveling mud all day. There's infections. It, it kills you quickly. It's grueling labor in the hot sun of the, the Middle East, um, and it's not exactly how you want to spend your days. So uh, the work here is is a huge burden. Um, then the king of, verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipra and the name of the other was Pua. And he said... When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, see and see them on the birth stools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, then he shall live. So Shipra and Pua mean fair and splendid. So Pharaoh goes to fair and splendid. Uh, those are both Semitic names or, or Hebrew names. Um, and they, uh, they mandate abortions uh, is essentially what's going on here. They're basically saying when that baby comes out of the womb, a birth stool would have been something where the woman kind of squats while they they give birth. So the midwife is there to catch the baby as it comes out, um, which means that the 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 mother is actually turned away from the baby for a moment before the midwife can uh, clip the umbilical cord and, and turn it around. So there's this small opportunity where a midwife can quickly kill the baby before the mom even knows. So the Jewish people, I guess, the theory is is that. We got this slimy little sin of the Pharaoh where he's going to be secret and covert, and then the Hebrew people won't rebel because they just think they're going to be cursed by God, that all their babies are dying, all their male babies are dying. So this is kind of an underhanded um, uh, sin, and it's it's not exactly the the edict of a powerful leader. It's the, the edict of an extremely weak leader, um, and it puts the puts the question of submission to authority into... Um, into the forefront. What do you do and how do you submit to people or don't you submit to people? And obviously when the Pharaoh makes this this edict, uh, we see that the first two heroes in the book of Exodus are these two midwives, fair and splendid. Um, and what makes them fair and splendid in part is that they defy and disobey this corrupt and sinful order. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about disobedience here in a second. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. 
but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and, and saved the male children? So not only are they not killing the male children, they're going out of their way to save the ones that maybe wouldn't make it. Uh, so they're actually doing the work of midwives. They're, they're, they're doing their job. So from Genesis, we have this idea of Joseph really submitting to the Pharaoh and, 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 deferring to the Pharaoh. And here we have this idea of rejecting the Pharaoh and actually defying him. This idea of authority and who you obey, essentially, if you're if you're within God's will or you're following God's plan, you should submit to the authorities around you. But this in this case, this is not the same thing because you're being asked to kill babies. And when you're being asked to kill babies, that's not God's will. God wants that baby. God's made that baby. Um, so when you kill that baby, um, it, at some level you're doing, you, you're basically submitting to the, the same thing that Satan asked Eve to do, which is to deny God's will and follow his will or follow your own will. Um, so if you're doing what God wants you to do, you're, you're not going to be killing those babies. So the Egyptians are seeing the true power of the Hebrews here. And that is that God works through the lives of Hebrew people. The Hebrew people don't fully submit to the Pharaoh. They give him good work. They help the economy. They're digging trenches. But you ask them to do something that defies the power of God, and they're not going to do it. And that, for I think for people that don't, for ungodly people, that's a major threat to them. So you can be a healthy, happy, hardworking individual that gives your boss more than what they want, but then your boss asks you to work on Sunday and you say, no, thank you. And that's a huge threat because the way your boss might read that is um, that you're not loyal to the company, that you're not willing to go the, the extra mile to get something done, which isn't the case at all. You'll just put that extra mile in on Monday night or Saturday afternoon, but you're not going to do it on a Sunday. And so you take these little stands and say, no, thank you. And worldly powers will always get jealous of that. There'll be a piece of them that gets a little irritated with that. And that's the problem, so to speak, with the Jewish people and Christians today, uh, is that we're not scared of what people can do to us if we don't obey them. We fear God more than we fear our boss. Um, We're going to choose an unseen God over a seen human, and to the seen human, that seems to be irrational. And we can even respond to the point of saying, look, the worst you can do is kill me. And even if you kill me, that's not really a threat because I just go to get, get to be with my God. So there's at no degree to which you have power over me that I don't give to you. Um, and that's a, a backbone that can be a real threat to people in power. Um, this is part of the reason why so many people left their kingdoms in Europe and moved to the United States, or at the time it wasn't the United States, it was the colonies, is that they wanted to get away from a king that was putting asking more of them than what God would allow them to give. So this is where we see disobedience in the Bible, is that you can disobey a man when he asks you to defy your God. And that's going to be the setup for God's intervention in nearly every occasion throughout the rest of the Bible, is that when human powers or people choose their own will over God's will, then God will often intervene to defend his people when they're put in that situation. So when you ask God's people to ask against God's will, I would say start watching out for where the next lightning strike is going to hit. Because God doesn't let that happen. He protects his children. And he's going to protect these midwives. Watch what happens. Verse 19, And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they're lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them. I think this is great. What they tell him is, Well, these 
Hebrew women, they're strong, healthy, <laughs> healthy hail women, and they're just squirting out babies before we can even get there. Um, this is an interesting thing. Our heroes in the story are lying to the Pharaoh. Um, in, question, in verse 18, the question that Pharaoh asks, you know, why are you saving the male children, even implies that the Pharaoh knew what was happening. He had heard rumors, right? Um, so uh, that's something where it, it's really clear here that they're just giving him a story and they're honoring God in doing that because, you know, I don't think they want to get killed. Uh, they're going to avoid that if they can. Uh, some say that this might be a rationale for lying. I don't think this is a rationale to lie. Uh, it's not a justification for lying. Uh, it is a justification for saving people's lives. And I think that there's a number of occasions, even in the, the German Holocaust, where people would lie to the the, uh, the Gestapo about harboring Jewish people in their homes and hiding Jewish people. So there was a lot of lying going on there. The difference between that lying and the lying that happens in most of our lives day to day is that there's a distinction between lies that save lives and lies that serve myself. And most of the lying that happens is because we want to make ourselves look better. We want to avoid conflict. Uh, Even our little white lies are because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. But ultimately, it's because we want them to think better of us. So we back away from truth. And we're not honest with people. And we try to elevate ourselves by lying. We try to avoid getting in trouble when we lie. And all of that kind of lying is to serve us. The difference here is this is the lying that saves babies and saves lives and, and, and instead of being foolishly blunt with the Pharaoh, because he's just going to find other midwives that will kill the babies. They want to stay in that position so they can save more lives and thus obey God over Pharaoh. So verse 20, therefore God dealt well with the midwives and people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God. Again, they're not being rewarded for lying. They're being rewarded for fearing God that he provided households for them, which I think is just a probably their heart's desire as they're making, they're helping all these babies come into existence is now that they have a household to live in and a family to be with. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born of you shall be cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So here we go. This sets the stage for the book of, uh, of Exodus. We've progressed from Pharaoh being scared of these people, to passing passing edicts, to work these people really hard, um, which is just kind of a slimy way to, to burden these people. And then he tries the secret kill off the babies method. That doesn't work. And in verse 22, he's going all in. The, the sin's public. It's on the stage. He's not trying guile or slippery, slimy methods anymore. Uh, he's being upfront with his sin. He's being out there with his aggression. There's no schemes, no guile, just an open assault on the Jewish people. Kill the weak Jewish people while we still can. Exterminate them. How can people do this? You may have already thought, We do a lot of this today. The ancient Greek people had no stigma at all about killing babies. In fact, some of their philosophers even defended killing off babies that weren't helpful to their society. The Eastern caste system, uh, even the Chinese people up through the modern day, um, had limits on how many babies you could have. The only belief system that really upholds the sanctity of life is the Judeo-Christian one. So when you challenge that idea that human life has inherent value all by itself, um, 
it's another way to attack Judeo-Christian beliefs. Um, try to redirect it a little bit and say, well, it's not that we're killing a baby. It's that we're honoring the choice of the mother of that baby. Well, you're honoring her choice. You're not really honoring the choices that baby would be making someday. Um, and this isn't the mom's issue. And, and that's where my heart breaks is that you have moms that really will kill a child because they dread what would happen if the baby was made, that they don't know how to care for it, they don't have provision for it, they don't have time for it, they want to do other things with their life. Um, So you have this mix of emotions going on with these mothers, but they live in a culture and a society where they don't know how the baby will be taken care of. Uh, Or they're selfish and they don't want a baby because they've got their own things they want to do. And and you have these situations where in in the first case... It would sure be wonderful if the, the church stepped up and just said, we'll take any of the babies you don't want. Just let the baby live. And I believe if that happened, the Christian church would prosper. Are we willing to take care of other people's babies? Are we willing to take children into our home to protect the sanctity of life? Um, so these are issues that start with the Egyptians that have gone through to the modern day. We've always had especially governments that think some people aren't worthy of living, so they're going to foster programs to eliminate those people through the killing of babies, and they're going to make it seem as unseen as possible, as as, as smooth and, and carefree as, as can happen. So they're going to paint the buildings nice, they're going to tell the midwives to do it in secret so the moms don't even know. Let's just hide this ugly truth from everybody else. You've got other ancient societies that didn't hide it at all. Uh, Cronus worship in Carthage, for instance, or Moloch worship in Canaan. They had massive statues where the arms would be held out and you'd put your child in the arms of the god and it would roll down into the fire and be killed. Um, So how much evil you're willing to tolerate and how much evil you want known in your society varies. But this idea that you kill off babies you don't want It hasn't varied a lot in the history of the world. It's been around forever. Um, So now what's going to happen? This is the situation, is that we now have a government program of killing off all the male babies. Um, That's not part of God's plan. So there's going to be an intervention. I love how Exodus 2 starts in verse 1. There went a man. Uh, Just, you know, a man and a woman. It doesn't matter who they are because at this point we're dealing with a nation, right? What's important here is the story of Israel. Um, And the writer of this uh, is believed to be Moses. Um, So when we look at the book of Exodus, we're hearing this story through Moses' eyes. And the humility Moses shows by saying, like, you know, this isn't about me. And he's going to share that this is Moses later on, but the fact that he starts the book and says, like, this is just a guy, right? Just one son out of thousands that didn't get killed. That's what matters here, and that's what's important here. And the reason they don't get killed is essentially because we have a third hero in this story, which is the woman, who says, I'm not going to kill my baby. I'm not going to throw my baby in the river and let it die. Um, So there's an act of defiance here that brings to bear a third hero, which is the the mother of, of Moses. And that's what's really important. It's not so important that it's Moses. It's important that God is at work, right? So there went a man of the house of Levi, went and took a wife, took as a wife a daughter of Levi. So two Levites uh, get married. These are larger tribes now. So the woman conceived and bore a son. 
And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. <laughs> I like the word beautiful child. Um, it, beautiful child gets, continues to get used. In Hebrews 11:13. it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. In Acts 7:20, Stephen uses the same kind of phrasing, in which time Moses was born and was exceedingly fair and nourished up in his father's house for three months. There's two important elements to this story, apparently. One is that he gets raised for three months in hiding, and the second is that he was a gorgeous little kid, and which I think is great. Um, I also, you know, you read this and you think, well, what a, first of all, it's probably not the mother writing this, it's Moses writing this about himself. And what baby isn't beautiful to their parents, right? So she looks at him and she just sees a gorgeous child. I think that's what God puts in the heart of parents, because if parents didn't love their children and think, wow, what a beautiful child, uh, it would be a lot less likely for those uh, parents to endure raising a child because it can be quite a journey. Um, so he has a pretty cha- pretty face. Um, and there went, flows from uh, Exodus 1, there went a man kind of, this is in contrast to the command that Pharaoh just gave. So Pharaoh says, kill all the boys. And then in verse one, it says, there went, and this is the, the response that, but there was one woman who was going to put her life on the line to save her kids. So go mom, uh, which makes for a nice Mother's Day discussion, right? That moms will put their life on the line for their kids. Watch how God will take care of her and what will happen here. Verse three, but when God, when, but when she could no longer hide him, because um, babies get older and their cries get a little louder, I would think. Uh, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, and and the child and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Notice that Moses' mother, to the letter of the law, she actually follows Pharaoh's command. In Exodus 1.22, it says, Every son who is born to you shall be cast into the river. Well, she cast him into the river. She did exactly what the law says to do, um, but she just added the boat in the middle, which I think is the first occasion where we see a, a, an ad, adept, legal-minded person in the in the in the uh, Jewish nation uh, that actually interprets the law and uh, makes it, you know, kind of turns it to their favor a little bit. Um, so she obeys the law. She puts him in the river. Uh, she just puts him in an ark. And, and, and the word there is actually an ark, and we'll see that again in verse 5. Um, it's the exact same word that's used in Genesis 6 through 9 for Noah's ark. And the only other time it's used in the Bible is for Moses' ark, this little crib that gets made that floats on the water. In both cases, God is intervening to save his people uh, from the calamity of the world and what's about to happen. So the sister here is likely Miriam. Um at this point, Moses would have had an older brother too, um, but this is probably Miriam, and she's supposed to stand afar off. The word there is yatsaf, uh, which means to station oneself or to strategically position oneself like a soldier would, right? So she's taken a position where she's going to be able to see what happens uh, to this baby in the bulrushes, um, and that's her, her command, or that's her job, is to see what would be done to the baby. At this very point, when you put that baby in the river, you're trusting God. So, so far in this story, uh, the mom's been hiding the baby. She's not killed him. She's doing a lot of things in her own power. But when she puts that baby out and lets go of that ark, 
She's essentially trusting God with her child. Um, and this step of faith is something that's going to get immediately rewarded by God, and, and which is so affirming when God does that. When we take a step of faith in our life and it's immediately affirmed by God, it just feels wonderful because you get that immediate reaction and result um, where you, you, that answer to prayer is quick. And sometimes when we pray, it can take decades for the answer to come, right? We pray in faith. But there are times when we as believers pray and say, God, I'd really love for something. And within an hour, within minutes, we get a phone call or we something happens or we get a news brief that actually answers the prayer. And you think, wow, God, you were already working on that. In this case, I think God's already been working on Pharaoh's daughter because it is not often somebody sees a baby and says, oh, I'm going to take that baby in. But something's going on in the Pharaoh's daughter's heart where she kind of wants a baby in her life. So Verse 5, then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river, and her maidens walked alongside the river, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. Which makes you wonder if Miriam and her mom strategically positioned this, or if they already knew people in the household of Pharaoh, um, or if even um, the uh, Miriam is actually um, ready for this moment and that they kind of put this baby here on purpose. But it doesn't say that. That's just conjecture. Verse 6, And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept, and she had compassion on him and said, Oh, this is one of the Hebrew children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women? So Miriam is, she's, She's Miriam on the spot. She's ready to run in and go, but I can get a nurse for him, uh, that she may nurse the child for you. So I think that's interesting. Here's the other thing. For those of you that know babies, there's two different kinds of baby cries. Um, there are the ear-piercing, screeching, kind of pterodactyl cries that a baby has. And that was Grant when he was born. Um when he cried, it cut right through your brain. It hurt to hear him cry, right? And there is no way you would open an ark and hear that kind of cry and your response shall be, oh, this is one of the Hebrew children or to have compassion. In fact, all you're thinking is, I'm really glad this is a beautiful baby because otherwise I don't think I'd, this baby would make it because it, it, it's a torture for, for uh, the first two years of Grant's life, this cry that he had, uh, this way in which his lungs would kick out air. Uh, it was It was horrible. Um, and there's no way around it. There's no cute or sweet around it. But then there's a second kind of baby cry. The the babies that cry, and when you hear them cry, you think, oh, isn't that cute? The baby is trying to be angry. Um, and it's just this cute little cry. And that was Katie's cry, to be honest. And I remember we brought her home from the hospital, and she slept through the first night. And we were dreading it. We are thinking, this is going to be another two years of not sleeping. Uh, but when Katie came home, man, she slept through the night the first night we brought her home. And when she would cry, it was this little, you know, whimper kind of cry where it, it definitely, you knew she needed something and you got up and helped her, but it was definitely a cute cry. I think Moses leaned on the side of the cute cry and that that was something where the, the Pharaoh's daughter heard that. And it was a precious little cry from a beautiful little baby. And she said, well, I want to take care of this. So in verse eight, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother, which happened to be the child's, uh, um, now, which is going to now be a servant that's going to be nursing it. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away, take him away and nurse him for me and I'll give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Not only is Moses saved from the water, but now his mom is going to get paid to be his mom. 
and it's going to be legal and above board, and this is going to be one uh, Hebrew baby, Hebrew male, that you, they're going to leave alive because the Pharaoh's daughter intervenes. For me, when I read this, and I see this immediate answer to a mother's faith, this is the God I remember from Genesis. This is the God that saves Jacob, puts up with his wrestling, that brings Joseph out of a jail cell and redeems him, that saves him from death. Um, at the end of Genesis, we got to say goodbye to Joseph, but I, this, this story right at the beginning of Genesis, we never said goodbye to God. The God of Joseph is the one that's precious. And when you see this kind of grace, this kind of attention to detail in the day-to-day life of humans, I mean, God can be creating new universes. God's massive. He's huge. He could be, you know, bringing a new flood on the planet, like these epic, huge things. But these little, tiny, saving moments, this is the God that feels really personal to me. This is the God that cares about our lives. And when you turn to God and you say, you know, God, should I do this or not? What do you think I should do here? And then you get a call from a friend that says, hey, I just got a, I was just praying this morning and I felt like I should call you and say, go for it. And you hang up the phone and you realize God just spoke to you through your friend. And God cares enough about our lives to send those little moments and bring those moments. And the older you get, the more you collect up a repository of those stories because you've been walking in faith and listening for that voice and God actually talks to us. And God tells us how to act and how to move. A great example was the, of this was actually just this last week. Um, I'm sitting down prepping for my class in the morning and I'm thinking, about, and, I, and it just occurs to me like, you know, it'd be really nice to have my notes printed today. And I just had this urge to print my lecture notes. So we had a lot of vocabulary. I didn't want to have to keep turning around and looking at my slideshow or anything like that. And I, I knew we had to get through this content. It was on testing assessment methods. So there's lots of acronyms and vocabulary that goes with it. And so I print off my lecture notes and I put them in my, my folder and I get to class. And while I'm sitting there hanging out with students before class starts, and about 10 minutes before our class actually starts, the power goes out through the whole campus. The phone line goes out, so I can't even call the tech people. The internet goes out, so I can't even open my laptop and pull up my slides and on my laptop. Because um, I'm thinking, well, okay, well, even if the power's up, I can get things on my laptop and just have a smaller screen. And, uh, but then it occurs to me without the internet, I can't even pull those up there cause they're all in Google slides. Right. Um, and my students are, you know, I'm sharing this with my students going, wow, what am I going to do here? And they're getting all excited and they just say, well, we can just cancel class. And I'm thinking we, we can't cancel class. We only got a week left and I really have to cover assessment. Uh, this is a key part of what you need to get out of this class. Um, and then it, and then it occurred to me that I had my lecture notes right in my binder. Cause I immediately am thinking, Oh Lord, what am I going to do here? And give me some guidance on this. And I'm trying to think of solutions and options. And then it just occurs to me, Oh, you got your notes. And, and so I pull my notes out and I, I laugh with the students and I said, well, you know, this is the first time and man, I don't think I can remember the last time I've printed off my notes. I mean, it's been at least two years since I've had paper notes in front of me. But for this morning, for some reason, I felt the instinct to print off my notes. And my students, of course, think it's just ridiculous. But in my heart, I realize, well, God's even taken care of that. Why would the God of the universe care if I have an effective class today or not? 
What difference does that make to God? But I think what it is, is God loves his children and he wants to tell us, I love you and I'll care for you. And boy, if you take out even little steps of faith, I'm going to show you I'm there. I'm going to show you with abundance that I'm there, right? And I'm going to take care of you. Uh, when I see that, when I see this kind of response to the mom's faith and her heroism in doing this, I just want to praise God. And I think, man, God is worthy of our praise because he steps in and he takes little steps of faith like that. And what a wonderful thing. So Moses's mom is going to get to nurse him for five years, right? And we're going to take care of him. And again, we don't even know this is Moses yet. If we're taking the author at their progression through things, it's not going to be till the next verse that we even know this kid's name. It's just some mom, some midwives, right, that are taking care of kids and defying this Pharaoh. And they're just part of the nation of Israel, right? But it just so happens that this kid is going to be the kid that the readers of this for generations, even through to today, are going to recognize as the Moses from the Bible. Moses doesn't get a last name. He doesn't even get a first name. He just gets Moses, and we know who he is. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's just one of these things. Is Here comes one of the most significant people in the Bible who can't even claim their own life as their own business because Moses wouldn't even exist if God didn't step in to save him at the very beginning. And I think that's exactly why Moses is writing this here, is no matter how much credit you want to give to him, no matter how much glory you want to ascribe to Moses, he can't claim any of that glory himself. So the word Moses, oh, verse 10, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. And that's what Moses means. In the in the Hebrew, it's drawn out. And it's interesting that he gets the name Moses uh, as a Hebrew name, um, because why would Pharaoh's daughter name him a Hebrew name? And it just so happens that Moses is also translatable into Egyptian. It works both ways. Um, but the logic she gives is a Hebrew logic, because I drew him out of the water. So this drawing out. In Egyptian, moi is water and shis is delivered. So moises is um, to be delivered out of the water in Egyptian. So it actually can translate into Egyptian and in Hebrew, which is a really effective name for Moses, who's going to live in both worlds, right? And it's going to kind of be a precursor, or even prophetic of the role he's going to play between these two people groups. So uh, Moses' mom is going to then take care of him for five years. He gets a lo- little older, a little past the crying stage, and now he's going to move into the court of Pharaoh, uh, and he's going to... Um, uh, grow up as a, as a uh, as an Egyptian, and he's going to learn and be educated there. So when she says he became her son, or when the the narrative says he became her son, that's a major story element. Moses is going to get raised in the palace. He's going to be raised like a uh, Egyptian aristocrat, and he's going to learn both cultures. He's going to learn the language and culture from his mom for the first five years. You can bet she had Sunday school where she was teaching Moses about the promises to the Hebrew people. We're going to even see later on, actually in the next verse, that Moses still has affinity with the Hebrews because he's raised by his Hebrew mom. Um, But he's also going to understand the culture, the customs, the wealth of the Egyptian palace. I mean, when an Egyptian prince goes riding around, he usually goes in a chariot with an entourage. If he goes by by water, he's going to be on a boat with a band playing. And I mean, he's going to learn the opulence of the Egyptian court. And he's going to understand that deeply. And and in that court, 
he's going to learn all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he's going to become mighty in words and deeds, which is in Acts 7.22. He's going to learn writing, philosophy, religion, music, history, science, and most importantly, if you're an Egyptian prince, you will learn the art of rulership and leadership. Egypt's in its golden age right now. Education, all the, these kinds of things are how the wealthy and how the upper class would have been trained. So they had schools, they had uh, places where you learned all these things, and he's basically going to be in that process for a long time. So as a adopted person of Pharaoh's daughter, he's technically in the line of, or he's technically an heir to the, the throne, or he would have a claim on the throne when the Pharaoh dies. Um, because even though pharaohs think they're gods, they actually still die. Um, and with his mom around as a servant, uh, he'd also be taught all the Jewish history and faith and, and, and language there too. So he really is getting the uh, the best of both worlds. So in 11, it says, now it came to pass in those days. Uh, we're going to learn later that now it came to pass means 40 years. When Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he went out as Yatza. It means to depart, to exit, to go forth. In other words, it means you could, there's a strong indication here that he went out means he left the Egyptian palace, like for good. He walked away from everything he was given in the Egyptian world, and he's going to go and, and be with the Hebrew people. So that he went out means he exited, he, he struck out on his own, uh, he took on his own mission and plan. Uh, and let's see how Moses' plan goes. There's, there's some accounts of uh, conflict that are going to happen here, that there, some of the Egyptian traditions and some of the Jewish traditions are that Moses got into it with another one of Pharaoh's sons and that there were some conflicts there. None of that's really biblical. All we get in the Bible is that he went out and he's going to go and start working with the Hebrew people. Um, notice that he, he went out to his brethren even though he's been raised under, by Pharaoh's daughter, he recognizes his brothers, his brethren, are actually the Hebrew people, which tells you that his biological mom had a lot to do with his upbringing still too. He looked at, is the word ra'ah, it means to see or perceive something, to have a vision for something, to recognize something for what it is. So it says, he saw an Egyptian. It means he recognized what was happening for what it was. So it wasn't just that, there was one Egyptian person beating a Hebrew. It's that there was an injustice here happening all over the place. So the word ra'ah is used in Genesis 1-4 when God saw the light and he recognized it was good, right? In Genesis 6-5, God saw the wickedness of man and there's a value judgment that comes with this seeing. So Hebrew uh, Moses is seeing the Hebrew getting beaten and he sees this and recognizes the evil that it is, that this is horrible. He should have stopped at that point and said, Lord, what would you like me to do? What would you have me do right here? Give me a sign. He could have done that, but Moses isn't the, he isn't the man of faith that he, Abraham is yet. He isn't the man of uh, negotiation that Jacob was yet. He's not the diplomat that Joseph was yet. He's a blunt instrument and he sees something bad and he reacts and he has his own plan to it. So, in verse 12, he looked this way and that way, which is something a guilty person do, does. He knows he shouldn't be doing this. And when he saw nobody, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So Moses' reaction then is to 
oh my goodness, he's just going to murder the guy. I mean, this is not wit or charm. It's just brute force. This is Moses' plan. He is going to start an active brute force rebellion, and he's going to do it by killing this guy. I get the image of him even hitting him on from behind. Like, he, he sneakily does it. He makes sure nobody is looking. Then he tries to hide it. He buries the body. And he thinks he's done this thing in secret, but we're going to find out in a couple verses. It's not in secret. Everybody knows what's going on here. You wonder why he did it right? In Acts 7, uh, verse 23, it says, uh, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, His motives might have been right. What he did, however, was not necessarily what what he was supposed to do. So so he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but the brethren didn't understand. That's also from Acts, right? He's thinking to himself that this is how God's going to deliver him. And, And he's trying to do what seems obvious to the flesh, right? And in our flesh, we it, it makes a lot of sense to just beat people up when we think they're wrong, right? Either verbally or physically. Um, and we want to see the people not being beat by the Egyptian guard. Um, but that isn't quite how it's going to work out for Moses, right? And it never works out. The way the world says to deal with problems in our life is not exactly how God would have us do it. it. In fact, it never works out that way, right? So his mom probably seeded these ambitions in him that he's going to be leading uh, Israel to uh, the, look at what God's done in your life, look at the opportunities he's given. You're going to be the one that leads us out of Egypt and gets us out of here because they know the prophecy given to Abraham is they'd be there for 400 years. Well, it's been that amount of time plus some, and it's it's time to go. And, and he's the only male in his generation that we know of that made it through this period of of genocide, right? So he's got to be the one to do it. The world tells him to just go at it. And I think the world tells us to do things too. If I, I try to think of the United States, what is the world telling us to do? Well, we go to school at age five and the world tells us to work hard and get good grades. Then we get to high school and college and the world says study even hard, like work harder, make sure you get good grades. Get these little A's on a piece of paper with a little letter um, that says you're a good person. And then you get your first job and you're supposed to work really, really hard at your first job because you got to pay off all the debt from going to college or going to tech school, right? You pay off all your debt and then you got to work even harder because now you got maybe a family and you got to pay for some extra mouths to feed and you got your own kids and you got all these responsibilities. So then you start thinking, me, man, maybe I should work even harder so I might get a promotion so I can make a little more money to pay for all the the boats and cars and houses that I bought because now I got debt for that. Um, And then after a while, maybe you start getting on top of the financial game. You get to be midlife and you start working really, really hard so you can maybe run your own company or, or be on the board at your current company and you can make the big dollars. And why do you need the big dollars? <clears throat> because the world tells you that you got to retire. So retirement is coming. You need enough money to retire. So boy, you better you better make the big money so you can hit that rule of five and those last five years of your work, you're making enough that you can live on it. And then the last thing the world tells you to do is just go away, right? And disappear. You're not that important, you know? And all of those phases cause anxiety and stress and drama. And that's what Moses is feeling right now. He's feeling obligated to do something when maybe God's not calling him to do anything right now. Even in the face of injustice, the flesh says, well, we got to do something about it. And what we need to do is turn to God. 
he's the solution to that injustice. His plan is the right plan. Moses' plan just turns him into a murderer. And now he's as bad or worse than any of the Egyptians he's lived with. What if instead of studying harder, working harder, retiring harder, and, and, and entertaining yourself harder, what if the real purpose in life isn't any of that? What if everything the world is telling us to do is just wrong? What if the only thing worth doing in our life is to seek God? At work, do your job because you have to. Right? You, you got to pay your bills. You got to do your thing. Study hard, but do it to the glory of God. If you're going to do your job, see it as an opportunity to minister to the people around you. Moses has to learn this kind of humility. What if the only true purpose in seeking God is so that we can be content with what God has appointed us and the opportunities he's given us? What if God gives us no opportunities to minister? Are we okay with that? Is our relationship with God strong enough and mature enough to where we can just be at peace with what God gives us? And I think that's a challenge for us in the church. How many times do you see somebody walk into your church doors and the first thing they want to do is see where they're going to plug in, see how they're going to get blessed. What can I do to help? How can I do this? And I love it when pastors just say, why don't you just be blessed for a few months? Why don't you just come here and relax? You know, like we, we had church last week without you and we'll have church next week if you choose not to come back. But you know what? For six months, why don't you just hang tight? Why don't you just be blessed and let the spirit do a ministry to as you're going through a period of change in your life coming to a new church just be blessed and see how we do things and if if it's a good fit and you're here for six months or so and you you see a need that you want to fill then you're welcome to it but in the meantime how about you just be content and you just relax and you wait for god to open opportunities in your life that's a question i gotta ask myself am i content with what god has given me um is god enough is the promise of heaven all I need in my life? What if, and what if instead of me helping the people around me for my own vanity, what if what I should really do is accept help from other people? What if I'm the charity case? Am I okay with that? Am I okay with being helped as much as helping others? And I think that's a challenge that talented people like Moses are going to have. They're always going to have that. They're intelligent, smart. They were beautiful babies and they were, they're intelligent adults. And they just want to do things for other people all the time. But in doing things, you actually become the evil that you're trying to stop. You're putting your will and you're forcing it on other people. What if instead of doing that, we just need to humble ourselves and wait on God? Sure seems to be a pattern. Abraham had to wait on God. Isaac had to wait on God. Jacob really waited on God. Joseph spent decades waiting on God. But they were all blessed because they did it. They just waited on God to open up the opportunities. Do you see a pattern here with the people of God, the heroes of God, can wait years and decades doing seemingly innocuous things just to help out? I'll keep going. I'm, I'm going off on that a little bit, and I think that it's going to f- develop as we keep going. And when he went out the second day, behold, see, that's the same word, he could see something for what it was and make a judgment on it. Two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did wrong, why are you striking your companion? <clears throat> and then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Who made you there is actually... Uh, it reads to me, the first time I read it, it was like, who appointed you or who assigned you judge over us? But the word sum in the Hebrew is actually who created you to be a prince or judge over us. 
man, that had to hurt. If Moses grew up hearing that message of, you know, hey, there's a promise to the Hebrew people and, and you're going to help carry that promise through. And if that was seeded all the time growing up and he's gone out from the palace now and he's there to be a leader of the Hebrews, well, he appointed himself prince and judge over. That's the answer to that question. He's the one that left the palace. He didn't necessarily wait on God. We haven't even seen God mentioned at this point in the story, right? Who created you a prince? Moses did. It's a really telling question. Not only that, who's Moses to tell them to stop fighting? He just murdered a guy, right? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? He's at the level of murder, and these two are just at the matter of, the, the, the level of fighting, hit, throwing some punches, right? Not the same level of thing. So essentially what he's saying is, who are you as a murderer to tell me to stop having a fist fight with my brother? Like, what gives you that right? What gives you the moral authority? So in following his own plan, Moses has taken his own moral authority right out from under him. He's in no place to tell people what to do because he's already sinned in such a way um, that under even Noahic law, you shouldn't be killing people, right? So Moses' plan is a total failure. It gets even worse. So Moses feared. Now he's got fear. That's not from God, right? And he said, surely this thing is known. Really? He's not feeling guilty about murder. He's just worried about the fact that he's gotten caught for murder. Isn't that how sin works? You know, it's it's not that you're scared of that God seeing you do that thing. It's what you're really scared of is getting caught doing the thing. Maybe don't do the thing in the first place. But at this point... He's fearful and he's worried about getting caught. He's right to be worried in verse 15 when Pharaoh hears of this matter. He sought to kill Moses. By following his own plan, the real tragedy here is he gives Pharaoh the narrative that Pharaoh's been looking for for years, right? If he's 40 now, that means that the Pharaoh has had this plan in place to kill these babies for a long, long time. He's hated the Hebrews for a long time. Well, here's the one Hebrew he he lets live because his daughter intervenes and calls him her own kid. So he's got this one Hebrew, grows up to be 40, leaves the palace, and bam, he becomes a murderer. Well, that plays right into the narrative that Pharaoh... You can take even the most beautiful of Hebrew babies, you can raise them in the most perfect of palace settings, you can train them and teach them in all the best of science and knowledge, and what are they at the end of the day that even the best of the Hebrew people are going to be murderers? Moses, by following his own plan, as noble-hearted as it was, has it has turned absolutely horrible. Right, And now he's going to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. So now he's, instead of running off with the Israeli, with the Hebrew nation, he's running off all by himself. And he dwelt in the land of Midian, which means strife. And he sat down by a well. So once again, we have a Hebrew, uh, a, a, a hero in the Bible that plops down by a well, right? This is the lowest Moses can do- go. He was going to lead these people, and now he's in another country altogether, and he is in failure, and he is sitting where the animals are going to come drink. Midian is southeast of Canaan. Uh, if you look at Quranic records, the Quran, Quran, and the Quran is, you know, it's not the Bible. It's written seven hundred years after Christ, obviously pulling off some of these sources, but pulling from their own Arabian sources too. Midian is the land of the Arabs, right? So it's that territory that we're talking about. And in the Quran, um, it basically says that when the cities of Lot were overthrown, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities, when those cities were, were 
overthrown or turned over with an earthquake or, or whatnot. The Quran says that there were still people that were outside the cities. And those people, the Midianites, gathered together and made a contract that they wouldn't attack each other. And they came from multiple groups of people. This was a metropolitan kind of area. Um, so Midian is an assembly of these tribes of largely sheep herders or nomadic people that created a league of nations, right? And they cre- and they created this thing where they uh, they wouldn't hurt each other. <clears throat> of that league of nations, some of those nations were... Um, uh, Baal worshippers, some were Ashtaroth worshippers. A lot of them, based on the archaeology, were worshippers of Hathor, a, a female goddess that that is largely associated with Isis, um, which is an Egyptian god. Um, but some of those tribes still worshipped Yahweh. And remember, the 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 Midianites were descendants of Abraham. So Abraham was the father of many nations, not just the Israelites, the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, the Assyrians, the Edomites, the Amicalites, the Kenizzites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, um, all related to Abraham, right? So the people in this area are largely Semitic uh, and they've descended from that area. So There are some of these tribes, according to the archaeology, that that did not have those idols in their tents and didn't travel with those idols. The the Hathor worshippers actually had a tabernacle that they would move around in this desert area because they were nomadic people, um, which looks a lot like the tabernacle that Moses will oversee and direct for Yahweh. Um, So when he plops down by this well, what are the chances uh, that he would have landed next to a well that was dug by somebody that was a Yahweh worshipper? And the chances are... In Midian, slim, but not unrealistic, right? Um, Verse 16, now the priest of Midian, and it doesn't say what kind of priest. Midian's the people group, not the god. Priest of Midian had seven daughters. Um, So we see this... uh, this priest that has no sons, and, and sons are good in the ancient world because they can do the heavy lifting of, you know, sheep herding and shearing and whatever, but, um, and they were, uh, they're able to take over that inheritance according to some of those traditions. Well, he's got seven daughters and that daughters, those daughters are doing the work of the household. So, and they came, the seven daughters, they came and drew water and they filled their troughs with to water their father's flock, usually the job of the sons, right? But in this case, you got seven daughters kind of doing that work and taking care of the flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. So these girls, these women that were chased away by the male sheep herders to, 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 from the well. So, and this seems to be a pattern later in the next few verses, we're going to see that the father's surprised at how quick they come back. Um, and he's surprised because they've actually gotten used to being kind of abused by these shepherds and kicked out of line. So the shepherds show up and they cut in line um, and uh, drive the girls away. The rest of the, verse 17, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. So Moses, the blunt instrument, in this case, instead of murdering somebody, he's just sitting by the well and he sees these girls doing their work. And then the shepherds come strolling all up and say, hey, girls, get out of here. We're going to use the well. And they kick him out of the way. And Moses just says, hey, what are you doing? His sense of justice gets picked again. Only this time, instead of serving his own interests as being the prince of all the Hebrews, now he's just seeing it going, that's not right. You can't just, these girls were here first. Let them fill up their water. Let them do their thing. And why don't you guys just sit and wait in the hot sun for a little bit? You're bigger, you're stronger, and let the girls get their water. In fact, Moses, and this is really cool, stood up and helped them, right? 
so he doesn't these these words are emphatic powerful words right um stood up means to rise in power to arrive on the scene to establish something to come in surety stood up's a really strong phrase in the hebrew it's not just like getting off your chair it's you know he he rises in strength and and you can hear the the music the violins start kicking in and you know and this scene is like it's a slow motion scene is the word that we're using there and helped them is the same kind of word yasha in the hebrew means to save or deliver someone as in a battle right to come to the rescue so he is uh when it says, but Moses stood up and helped them, that can be pretty neutral in our language. But in the Hebrew, those words are more like he, he swooped in and he saved the day. And, and, and it's very out of place in context, unless what you're trying to communicate here is this, this moment right here, this is the beginning of Moses's ministry. It wasn't when he was murdering Egyptians. It wasn't when he was arguing with his own people. This, this act of humble service is exactly where he starts his ministry. I think this is just such a wonderful thing, right? That God begins his work with Moses when Moses is completely broken, when he's given up those goals. He doesn't have any ambition of leadership here. He doesn't have an agenda with these goals. Maybe one of his agendas is that Zipporah was a, 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 a handsome-looking young lady, um, and he's trying to help out these girls because there's one of them that looks, you know, catches his eye because he's going to marry one of these daughters. Um, so that could be a motivation, but come on, that's a pretty humble motivation, right? To start a family and, and do your thing. And um, it's just such an interesting thing that if you really want to serve the Lord, the first thing you should do is pray, humble yourself and say, what do you want me to do? It's what, it's what Paul says on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, 6. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's his first thing he says back, right? What do you want me to do? And where do you want me to go? And that that commitment, that high-intensity person, instead of being intense about your own goals, why don't you get as intense about asking God, what do you want me to do? So that's what Moses does. The first thing he does is he gets off his butt and he does something. Not big and glorious something, but simple and humble something, right? You want to be the top dog at your church? You want to be the big man at your work or the big woman at your workplace? How about you stay after the party and clean up? How about you sanitize the toilets? How about you straighten out some chairs, you pick up some trash, or in Moses' case, he's just going to water some sheep for some little girls, right? He's just going to do kind things for the people around him that need kindness. Look for the people around you that need ministry and serve them, right? Take the neediest person in your life and put yourself under them and lift them up, right? Matthew 20, 16 and the other gospels say the same thing. The first shall be last and the the last shall be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Think of that. We know the first, last, last, first stuff, but many are called. There's millions of people that call themselves Christian, but how many of those people serve humbly, without an agenda, without the look at me, look at me, look at how wonderful I am kind of ministry? But just that simple, quiet ministry of bussing the dishes, of cleaning up and wiping down the tables. And, you know, there's a a plant at our church where somebody had kind of spray painted the leaves on it. And every time you bump that thing at all, it drops leaves all over the floor. How about you get down on your hands and knees and you pick up the dried leaves to keep the carpet clean up in the front of the sanctuary? How many people are willing to do that 
or is it too much trouble that they might wear a hole in their fancy pants? You know, it's, it's one of those things where Moses is just, he's reached the end of his own plan, and that's when God's plan is going to begin. He's going to submit. He's going to take his lofty goals and throw them out the window where they belong, humble himself, and just do what God's put in front of him right now, today. How will God use that? Well, he's going to use it greatly. Moses is, we're hearing this story because Moses is used greatly. He's chosen. Why is he chosen? Because he's humble. And he's not going to take the place of God when it comes to this. And we're going to see that throughout Moses' life, he rarely pursues this ambitious idea. He's going to push against God every time God asks him to lead. Because he's tried leadership and it didn't work. And it doesn't work for him. Oh, that the church could have millions of people like that serving the people around them. Instead of telling them what to do, you just serve them and help them. Verse 18, when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, how is it that you've come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. I think it's curious that the daughters say he's an Egyptian. He must still be dressed like an Egyptian. He must still have an Egyptian hairdo, right? They see him and they see Egyptian. And I think it's wonderful that even though this is an Egyptian, the hospitality that Ruel is about to show is, is hospitality to who he thinks is an Egyptian. But he's going to be blessed because this is not an Egyptian. This is a, a Hebrew in disguise, right? A Yahweh worshiper in disguise. Um, so uh, delivered us. The girls uh, elevate Moses. He doesn't have to elevate himself. Uh, that delivered us is that same idea of to, to take away, to pull out. He saved us. He came to our rescue, right? Uh, it can also be translated as drawn out, which is the same translation for Moses. Uh, these girls honor him as the Hebrews did not honor him. Uh, so the first people that really saw Moses as a deliverer are some shepherd girls out in Midian. Uh, and uh, they're the first that recognize what God sees in Moses. And I think that's just a, a beautiful thought. So he said to his daughters, verse 20, <clears throat> where is he? Why is it you've left the man call on him that he might eat bread? Like, let's show some hospitality here. <clears throat> So Moses probably still sitting by the well, still depressed, right? He's probably still thinking, God, why have you put me here? What are you doing? And God's already working out the plan. He's already training and coaching Moses through hardship, just like he trained Joseph, just like he trained Jacob, right? These trials that come in the life are exactly how God paints his picture in our life, right? Sometimes he has to use darker colors. Then Moses was content to live with the man, Look at that. So I I just want to stop there. Then Moses was content, right? 40 years old, midway through his long life. He's just content, right? He's, this is what God's given me. I'm okay with it. Those dreams of glory that maybe got put in his head by his mom or the other Hebrew people or, or the, even the Pharaoh, the dreams of Egyptian glory, forget it all. Like he's just content. Then Moses was content. To live with the man, Ruel, right? Again, he goes back to just not even really a name here, just a guy. And he gave Zipporah, which means little bird. What a great name. He gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses, and she bore him a son, called his name Gershom, which means foreigner. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange in a foreign land. Moses, like, he's not Egyptian now. He's not Hebrew now. He's not Midianite. He's nothing, right? And what a great place to start your walk with God is like, God, I'm nothing. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I got nothing to offer your kingdom, but I can be content with that. If you love me and I love you, 
that's all that I need in my life to be content, right? And then, man, then he gets a wife, he gets a son, like the blessings in Moses' life start showing up. As soon as he's content with things, bam, God can start moving with that. How many people have Steph and I known where it's, it's almost within a month, within a week, even within days of when they're like, you know what, I'm okay if it's just me and God for the rest of my life. That bam, somebody shows up where they, they can do that. And we have people we know that are okay with just being me and God for the rest of my life. And it's seemingly God's leaving them as a single person, but they're still content. They've honestly in their heart become content with that status, right? So another little notice here is that he's hanging out again with shepherds, right? And it just occurred to me, Moses growing up in a palace and finds his way to being a shepherd. And how many leaders is God raising up from this kind of agricultural livestock community? And it's where it seems to be that tending sheep is where God trains his people. And there's a great responsibility and focus to tending sheep. And it also comes with days and weeks and months of just the boredom of it. But you have to keep your guard up even through that tedious work. But God tends to breed leaders amongst this tedious work of shepherding. So anyways, so this is going to be a 40-year season for Moses. He's going to spend 40 years learning humility, learning how to work, how to love, how to care for others, and how to live in this arid and barren part of the world, right? This is kind of where we're going to wrap our story, um, but there's a little tag at the end of this chapter where we're going to get back to our primary character. Moses is not the primary character. He's just an instrument that God's going to use, and I think we can see that. The real character here is God, so we're going to kind of, it's kind of a meanwhile. Moses is hanging out with his little bird. He's a permanent foreigner. He doesn't belong anywhere, but meanwhile, while Moses is in desert boot camp, doing some sheep herding, God is hearing these Israelites. He's back over here too. So let's get back to the main character in verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and the cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. So again, we kind of, we end up where we started at the beginning of verse chapter one, where you got all these names and then we deal now with the nation of Israel, right? We're transitioning from Genesis where we worked with characters. And one of the things the writer of Exodus is doing is he's really emphasizing going name, 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 but now we're dealing with the children of Israel, the nation of Israel. We're not dealing with those individuals anymore. The promise is held within the nation. The promise isn't with just the people. So verse 24 and 25 do that same thing that we saw at the beginning of chapter one, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, individuals, the promise resided with Abraham, it resided with Isaac, it resided with Jacob. And now we see that God is, that promise resides with the children of Israel and God acknowledges them, he sees them. The groaning is an exhausted breaking point. It seems that when the king of Egypt died, whoever took over continued this policy of breaking these Jewish people. And they've about had it. They're at their wits' ends. Um, It's time. uh, God remembers. God hears, right? So we see this kind of thing. God heard their groaning. God remembered their covenant. And God looked upon. So God, and God acknowledges. So how can God be doing all these things? Well, Elohim is God's. It's a plural form of a singular name, right? So uh, 
God's doing these things because there's a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, and the, the, God is acting in the, in many different ways all at the same time. And he acknowledged them, the Hebrew word yada. He knows what's going on. He perceives it. He understands with complete depth, and he understands it with complete accuracy. Um, God acknowledged them. That's what that kind of means. God's already working out his plan. And while Moses is groaning over here, God's totally timing things out on his own. So here we've got the people of Israel doing great things in Egypt in chapter 1. And despite how good they're doing and how much they're prospering exceedingly, fruitfully, wonderfully, they're growing in all these ways, you still have people that just... Boy, if you can't fully submit to me, if you're going to hold anything back, then you're a danger to my rule and my reign over you. And the world does that to us all the time. We as Christians are a threat to anyone who wants complete authority. Frankly, this even happens in our families when they want us to come to an event or a party or something like that. And we've already got a commitment to the church. And now you've got this conflict. Well, I got two things I got to go to. And you'll get a lot of pressure from your friends and family to go to their event, their thing. And then you say, but but boy, I'm already cleaning toilets at the church. I've promised I would be there to do that. I want to keep my commitment to God before I keep my commitment to anything else. When those moments happen, you really start to see how the world works. The world doesn't like it when you hold anything back from them. It happened to Jesus, too. There was a funeral in his family. What family doesn't have funerals as a must? You must go to the funeral. But Jesus, not out of disrespect for the dead, but it comes across pretty harsh when they're pushing him and pushing him, and you have to go to this funeral. You have to come back for it. Jesus turns on him and he says, let the dead bury their own dead. I'm not obligated to you as my friends and family. I will serve God first. And then I'll come and love on you and minister to you and do whatever you need. But my duties to God come before my duties to anything else. It's in the workplace when they want you to come in on a Sunday and work on a Sunday afternoon. And you're saying, you know, I'll give you everything I got six days a week. But on day seven, you don't own me. No Christian would be that undiplomatic. But you're essentially saying you don't own me on Sundays. God owns me all seven days and he gives you six of them. Right? And I'll be the best employee in the world six days a week. But on Sunday, that's my family time. That's my God time. That's the time I'm committing to whatever the church needs me to do at that time, right? Have those conversations with your boss and you're going to find that your ungodly bosses don't respect that you follow God first. The wise bosses, like the Pharaoh that oversaw Joseph, totally gave him that room. You can serve your God first. I'll take those six days gratefully right? So then you have godly bosses. You'll have people in your family and your friend groups that are same way. The godly people will honor and respect that your church commitments come first and they'll plan around your church commitments. If they really want to see you, they'll plan around those things. Um, And you got other people in the family that frankly are following their own path in life that don't understand because they're living for those moments and they can't understand why you love God more than you love them. And they'll say things like, man, it seems like you're in a cult and can't you just skip church or can't you do, can't you just not go to Bible study? And it's like, I've been going to Bible study for three years. You know, it's on this night of the week, plan around it because I've made a commitment to go to a Bible study. And that comes before my family and friends. So if you love me, you should love the fact that I love God and you should honor and respect that. There are so many people, even people that at face value, you think they're good, nice people, but that just tortures them when you say things like that. 
And it's not because you don't love them. It's because you do love them, that you want to be the person you say you are. And if you say you're following God and you've made a commitment to a, a service at the church or a ministry over here, or you're, you're going to a Bible study over here, or you're dedicated to just doing Sunday mornings, for goodness sakes, the first step, just commit your Sunday mornings, right? You're going to find that Satan loves to work through people to tear you away from those things once in a while at first, but then it seems like there's always something that comes up where you can't make it. Like there's always something that you're so busy, you can't serve God first and you can't scratch those times out of your life. Um, And it's amazing how even good, wonderful people get used in that way. Well, no, we have to have you here for that one hour. We really need you. And that's where Moses is at in these situations, right? He, 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 He's trying to serve things, does it on his own will, um, and then he finds himself at conflict with the people around him, right? Obviously, he murdered somebody, so it's pretty clear why the Pharaoh wants to get rid of him. But even under his own plans, his own Hebrew people don't understand what he's trying to do, and they don't think that what he's doing that great. He has to get back to that humble place where he just says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to I'm gonna live 40 years out here with Zipporah, and I'm just going to raise my family and do my thing and serve my God. Um, and, and if God calls on him, then he's even resistant at that point. Cause he's like, God, I'm giving up all these things. I'm just going to serve you. Um, but go ahead and try just serving God, just doing those simple acts of, of service and watch how the world will kind of get in the way of that and come with conflict with that. Um, but that humble service model modeled by Moses is such a wonderful and a beautiful and a, a delightful thing. Uh, let's say a word of prayer. In Jesus name. We just lift you up. Lord, help us to be humble and to serve you and to let, once we've made that decision, Lord, help nothing to get in the way of it. That what you demand of us is our due service. What you ask of us is that um, we love you and we honor you and we serve you. So we just ask, Lord, for you to help us to do that. Help us to make those small, tiny commitments. Help us to just do the things that you've put in front of us today. Help us to see the powerless, those that are being taken advantage of, Lord, and to just help them and to serve them, not to murder their oppressors, Lord, but to just draw water for them and to just help them keep their place in line. Um, Lord, help us to never be discouraged that what you've given us is exactly what you want us to be doing to help us to grow and transform and develop in the faith, Lord, that so many people are called, but so few are chosen, Lord. Um, Lord, we just want to be preparing our hearts to be chosen. And that means to be satisfied with what you've given, to not aspire, to not push our own will or agenda, Lord. It just doesn't work. It never works. Um, Help us to just be content with what you've given us today and then be resolute in it, Lord, to just be committed to being content. Um, Help us to not feel obligated to obey authorities that call us away from God. Help us to be like the midwives and be like Moses' mom where we just say, no, thank you. I'm going to serve my God, and I'm going to do that before I obey you. And Lord, we just pray that as that becomes a threat to our friends, our family, our coworkers, um, that they can see us for the caring, compassionate people we are, not for the fact that we want to retain some things for you, um, that we're not going to obey every command and edict that humans give because we're going to follow you first. Um, And we know that that eventually brings people into conflict with the world. Um, so, Lord, I pray for everyone, uh, Lord, that um, calls upon you as their Lord and Savior to put their own will and their own agenda to the side, just like Moses did, and put your will and your agenda 
in their hearts and to be content with the role you've given. Lord, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Lord, you know my heart. Uh, you know that the years we've spent working on just being content, Lord, help me to be content too. Uh, help me to just be happy with the, the ministries you've put in front of me, that, to do them faithfully with all my strength, Lord, and to do that in such a way that I honor you. Uh, and I pray that for everybody in this room, Lord. Be in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.